Today we're going to be in Psalm 118. Again, that's, uh, that's Psalm 118. Guess if you're new to the Bible or you didn't bring a Bible, uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, you can just Google Psalm 118 and the letters ESV, which is the version we're using, uh, and it should pop right up. So, Psalm 118. I'm going to ask you a question that you're not going to like, and you've probably been asked before, but in a very stressful situation. Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> I've been asked it in just about every job interview I've been a part of. Um, and as someone who has both interviewed others and been interviewed myself, I'm always struck by how clumsy and unprepared we are in answering it. We don't like this question because it's one of those questions where the question isn't really about the question, but the asking of it. You follow? Uh, nobody is asking because they actually care about where you are in five years. That's why we don't like it. It seems kind of disingenuous. They know that nobody knows where you will actually be in five years. Now, what interviewers love and interviewees hate about this question is that rather than it saying anything about the coming half decade, it tells the interviewer almost everything they need to know about where you are right now. And it stings to answer this question because we don't usually like what we find. It's uncomfortable to think about the future because it really hurts to assess the present. And if you're anything like me, your life is filled with things you want to change, things that need to change, things that you are desperately trying to keep from changing, and you just can't take it anymore. You want out of whatever you're in, and you want in on whatever you're out of. To use a phrase you'll hear from most disgruntled employees, you're already interviewing. <laughs> um, if that is you this morning, this is your psalm. This psalm is encouragement for the discouraged, it's vigor for the faint, it's rest for the weary, and perseverance for all those ready to give up. And it is all these things not because it promises the Christian anything new, but because it pushes the Christian to realize, to celebrate, and to rejoice in the fullness of what he or she already has in spades. The perfect, eternal, unchanging, steadfast love of God. So please look with me, Psalm 118, starting in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. 
They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. These are the words of the Lord. Please pray with me for help. Heavenly Father, as we search the scriptures, give us life. As we seek to understand, give us insight. As we seek to know you more truly and rightly, sharpen us. Give me wisdom in how to encourage my friends. Give me words to speak that would serve your purposes. That we would all see the person of, and work of Christ and he would be marvelous in our eyes. That through him we would all leave more convinced of your steadfast love and faithfulness enduring even, Father, to us and whatever burdens we brought here today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I recently came across a YouTube video, which when I say most of you are a little scared because you've received YouTube videos from me in the past, and they're shocking. <laughs> The algorithm has spoken again. <laughs> it was one of those YouTube videos that you come across that was strangely profound, or at least it was trying to be. Um, the video's title, I'm leaving everything and going to Alaska. This is why. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the video starts with random clips of a young man in his daily life, and in the background, a bit of his manifesto. 2,340 days, he starts, or 21,060 hours, or 1,263,600 minutes. At first, I thought he was quoting rent, but 
never mind. <laughs> or if you want to get really specific, 75,816,000 seconds, but most commonly 13 years. But since we're on the subject of doing math at nine hours a day, 180 days a year, that's nearly two and a half years straight of my entire life taken away. Two and a half years worth of non-stop, no breaks, no sleep, government-regulated education. <laughs> I'm sure you can sense the bitterness. 13 years of my life has been given away to an education that I, frankly, had zero say in, has standardized anything or anyone that was truly exceptional into oblivion. He continues, now for the first time in my life, I have that free reign that I've always wanted. I'm finally done. I've done my time. I got all the credits. And now I can walk a free man and do what I want to do. The school system, it doesn't work alone. It's a conveyor belt. It holds people in place until they're ripe for college, keeps them until they're $150,000 in debt and four years older, and feeds them at last into a workforce where they'll stay basically until they die barbaric. <laughs> the school system is a tyrant with no one's best interest in mind but its own doesn't care about freedom or happiness or peace or purpose or genuine joy or anything else like that. All it wants is for you to sit down, shut up, and pay attention. And that's why I'm going to Alaska. <laughs> the video then ends with a quote about personal fulfillment from Chris McCandless, you know, the folk hero that eschewed modernity, lived in the wilderness, and died by eating poisonous berries? <laughs> the guy that you want to learn that kind of thing from? My favorite part about all of this, and this is just, this is gold, the name of his YouTube channel, Betting on Alaska. <laughs> now, I think we can all laugh. I mean, what century are we in again? Alaska has school, too. <laughs> it has office parks, too. It has careers. It's absurd. But I'll be the first to admit, I'm rooting for him. <laughs> the angst, the sticking it to the man, the action, the illusion of taking control, making your own way in some pseudo-transcendentalist dreamscape. And it made me realize, I too am betting on Alaska. Maybe my Alaska has fewer mosquitoes and polar bears and maybe it has some nice things like electricity and a sun that actually comes up during the winter. But oh boy, aren't we all just betting on Alaska. Maybe it isn't school that's your poison. It's still mine. I've been in school way longer than 13 years. <laughs> maybe it isn't the berries, but it's something. The long hours at the office, financial instability, taxes in California, the left, the right, what the church is doing, what the church is not doing. No more government subsidies for chili cook-offs. <laughs> We're sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sure our psalmist was tempted to feel the same. And yet I think the psalmist provides a paradigm that enables the faithful in any and every circumstance to praise the steadfast love of the Lord. Not by promising something new, but by enabling the believer by faith to realize 
the circumstance they are already in. Look with me at the first four verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Now, you probably noticed as I read the psalm quite a bit of repetition. That's a common technique in this psalm. This is done for emphasis. What the psalmist is saying is that the phrase, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, serves as the anthem of each and every one of God's people. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, the faithful foreigner, the grand imperative of this psalm is right out the gate, the constant and consistent proclamation that God is good, that his steadfast love endures forever, and this is to cause thankfulness in our hearts. And I believe one issue we might come across in giving thanks to God for his steadfast love, one reason why we might be bored by the repetition and why it might seem like bad writing to us is that we assume that we understand it and we might not. If we're to understand the steadfast love of the Lord in the context of all of Scripture, I think we ought to see it as the attribute of God that is the origination of all the goodness that we, as his people, receive from him. It is not merely some warm feeling God has for you, and yet it is a term that is nevertheless filled with warmth and familiarity. It doesn't mean God thinks you're cute, but it does mean that you are cherished. It is not God trying to help you reach your full potential, but it is a God who places you in the fulfillment of his promises. The steadfast love of God in this text is massive. It's weighty. It's the attribute that originates every last drop of good that God shows his people. In it is every last reason you would ever call God good. It is eternal. It shows you before the foundations of the earth. It causes your heart to beat. It causes your soul to trust. It is covenantal. It sowed fig leaves to cover our shame. It promised an offspring to crush the serpent's head. It brought Noah safely through the deluge. It called Abraham. It stayed his hand against Isaac. It brought Israel out of Egypt. It forgave David in the matter of Bathsheba. It brought lightning to defeat the prophets of of Baal. It preserved the 7,000 who refused to bow their knee. It inspired the words of the prophets. It guided the burning coal to Isaiah's lips. It promised the Messiah. It fulfilled all righteousness. It fastened God's Son to a Roman cross. It raised him from the dead, and it indwells each of us now. It allows us to thank God for all of his other attributes. It is what makes it possible for us to, as sinners, be comforted by his omnipotence and omnipresence without fear of being crushed by it. It is what allows us, as those who have broken God's law, to appeal to his justice in pleading our cause. It is what makes his immutability, his unchanging nature, our solid rock rather than our inevitable doom. It is purely and simply what the glory of God looks like to the believer. And it is 
the believer's life. It is your paradigm, Christian. It is your inertial frame. It's the supermassive black hole at the center of the church. It is the momentum of all of history. It is where you have been. It is where you are. And it is where you are going. And it is this for which we are to be thankful. It is this that is our anthem. It is our main thing. It is our every gospel truth. It ought to fill each of our hearts and mouths. It is our celebration. And if you're taking notes, I have three actions of God according to this steadfast love that will serve as our outline. I can be grateful for God is good because he answers me, he guards me, and he saves me. Point number one, he answers me. Look with me at verses five through seven. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Now the psalmist here recalls a time of distress that the Lord answers. He calls out, the Lord answers and sets free. But beyond this, notice the connection between the answering of the psalmist's prayer and the position of the, of the Lord. The Lord answers and sets free because the Lord is on his side. The Lord is not sitting far off and he's on his way. The answering of the prayer reveals the circumstance in which the psalmist lived with the Lord at his side. The prayer wasn't what brought God near. The answering of his prayer revealed God's position to him. Notice, too, the changing of the tenses. Out of my distress, I called, and the Lord answered. Then, a confident proclamation in the present tense, this, the Lord, this Lord is on my side, and then I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The enduring timeless, steadfast love acts in every tense. Prior grace reinforces present realities which produce confidence for future grace. What the Lord did, He is doing, and He will do. He did answer, He is on my side, He will answer. In the dominion of God's steadfast love, the future is the, present, is the fruit of the past and the present. The future is the steadfast of the Lord, progressively revealed and yet to be experienced. And this is our circumstance too. When we're bound by all of our distresses, we are set free by His grace. This is the scene we're all in. I remember learning in school, uh, it wasn't all useless as it turns out, um, about the history of the camera. And one experiment I read about was some guy in the Middle Ages that discovered something really interesting about light. He invented something called a camera obscura. What this guy did was he created a big box that he went into um, that was completely sealed except for a small pinhole that let in a small amount of light from the outside. 
And what he realized as he did this was, from inside the box, there was an inverted image of what was going on outside projected on the inside. This ended up demonstrating the basic physical properties for the, the camera we know today. This psalm serves as a bit of a camera obscura for us all to see and understand our lives and shared experiences as believers with reference to God's steadfast love. We are in the box and there's a pinhole and what's being projected is all of our lives lit by the steadfast love of the Lord. Each time the psalmist recounts God's activity and draws on that experience, imagine a pinhole. Out of my distress, the Lord answered, is the pinhole and lens through which you see the Lord answering your distress projected on the other side of the box. The reality is that if you have believed the gospel, no matter what your current distress is, this verse is true of you. The governing circumstance, the pinhole in your camera obscura that all the light of God's steadfast love passes through is the Lord answering you when you were at enmity with him. It was him setting you free when you were enslaved. The greatest distress we have ever experienced is that we were enemies we were the enemies talked about in verses 10 through 12. We were the all nations that the Lord was ready to cut off. Every other distress pales in comparison. We know he hears and answers because that's what he does in the gospel. And yet, it seems like every time, at least I am in distress, every time I experience suffering, I feel as if God is far away. I lose all confidence in the Lord's being on my side. It's hard for me to say he is on my side when I feel surrounded by enemies or temptations or difficult people or besetting sins. I am asking the Lord, but I don't feel him answering. And insert whatever you have before you. I'm betting on Alaska because I'm distressed by Californians. I'm betting on children who do what I say, but I'm distressed by their disobedience. I'm betting on a spouse to make me happy, but I'm distressed when they don't. I'm betting on answers to my health concerns, but distressed by confusing results. I'm betting on a more fulfilling career, but I'm stuck in whatever I'm doing. I'm betting on more sleep, but I can't get it. Now, these are all good things to ask for. The problem is not that we're asking the Lord for help in any of these things. We ought to. We're called to cast our burdens on the Lord. Notice the psalmist is not self-critical of having been in distress. The problem is not that we are distressed. Instead, the reason we leave prayer discouraged is often not what we're asking for, but how we are asking. Have you ever considered that maybe the problem is we're asking the Lord to be on the side of our bets when he is answering on the side of our souls? He is not a zealot for our bets. He's not a zealot for our comforts. He's not a zealot for our requirements. He is a zealot for our hearts. And we must be grateful. We must be grateful even when we don't understand what he is doing because we know where he is. He is on our side. He is in our place. He is for us. And he fights for us. And this, is, this leads me to my next point. 
I can be grateful for his goodness because he guards me. He guards me. Now, verses 8 through 13, I'm not going to read them all, but we see the repeated phrase, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, this might be hard for our modern sensibilities to swallow. Uh, It's certainly hard for me to swallow. Um, It is easy for us to understand the answering and the setting free, but it isn't easy for us to understand or realize what steadfast love uh, for the psalmist means for his enemies. Remember in verse 7, the steadfast love in this passage means triumph over enemies. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off is what he means by that. As a vivid illustration, mostly because we just went through Galatians, the verb there is the verb form of circumcise. Ouch. That would have meant the nations surrounding Israel. It would have meant judgment. God in his steadfast love toward his people stands against all those attempting to thwart his promises for them. In Israel, that was undeniably related to a promised land, Um, Those who tried to conquer it were cut off. The violence serves for us as a tangible illustration of the fullness, sufficiency, and magnitude of God's steadfast love for us. The question you need to ask is, who are my enemies? We could certainly include Satan, the evil one, demons, but I don't think it would be a stretch to include our own sinful desires in this what Paul calls the old self. No need to turn there, but I can't help but think of Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is the New Testament way of saying, he has answered me and set me free. He has crucified my old self. Most of us have no combat experience. I'm a big wuss. Um, But make no mistake, all of us know what it is like to be surrounded on every side by an enemy, from the littlest among us to the oldest among us. All of us know what it is like to be at serious risk of not only our lives, but of eternity. Likewise, all of us know the Lord as, this, as, as a refuge and one better suited to guard us than the palace of the greatest earthly princes. Even in our suburbanite context, we all know what it means to be pushed, like the psalmist said, to the point of falling. There's a moment I remember in high school, um, there was a Christian club on campus that was promoting something. I can't remember what, uh, and if I'm honest, it was probably worthy of some criticism, just with my experience with Christian clubs. <laughs> um, but I remember someone mocking it. On the flyer was something like, joy despite the pain, that was like their tagline or whatever. And this individual mocked and jeered, ah yes, joy despite the pain. Please God, help me through all of my white people problems. <laughs> While we aren't tempted maybe to say that, or at least we shouldn't be, I'm very familiar with the sentiment. In fact, it was even hard for me to compare what the psalmist was going through to our own context. Feels almost kind of dramatic. (laughs) Because to a certain extent, I can be tempted to think along these lines, even at some points uh, thinking it's godly to do so. 
We have it so amazing in California. Can't we just stop complaining? The sun's out. Isn't it tempting to feel this way when we think someone is going on a little bit too long, a little bit too perplexed by something we feel that isn't really that big a deal in our eyes? It's the classic small group situation after someone who's just reached our bona fide suffering seal of approval finishes sharing, and I'll just call him self-aware Steve, responds, I'm a little, I'm a little scared because my cholesterol's a few points high. <laughs> But to examine ourselves, I think this demonstrates the exact, uh, exact problem it attempts to mitigate. I think it misunderstands what the danger is of being human. Your enemy isn't your riches any more than your friend is your poverty. When Paul spoke in Ephesians about the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, he didn't make any consideration of whether you were rich or poor. The peril we are saved from is real. And if we are to be faithful in little, we are to be faithful in much. We don't move from trusting God in the big stuff and ignoring the small stuff. God guards us in the smallest of our battles because he guarded us in the biggest. Experientially, we feel surrounded all the time. I'm surrounded on every side by every temptation. I'm surrounded by my own sinful desire. Though it obviously does not mean that we are to commit violence against others, by no means, Jesus says not to do that, we are surrounded and pushed by people who are at least not encouraging us to do the right thing. Our triumph over our enemies this side of the cross looks like the quiet, godly, and dignified lives we are all called to live, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And our confidence to do so is the protection that the gospel brings. We have all of this by the person of, and work of Christ, which leads me to my last point. Number three, he saves me. Now, earlier this year, in children's ministry, uh, Psalm 118.24, this is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it, was the memory verse that we were teaching Madeline at the time. And every night with Madeline and Gideon, I read a psalm, so I decided to, see, to, to read Psalm 118. Um, and it was always fun because she would go, oh, that's my verse. And then I'd be like, yes. <laughs> it's actually now Madeline's favorite psalm, though I'm kind of becoming increasingly suspicious that she likes it more than, let's say, Psalm 23 because it's just longer and it means she can stay awake longer. <laughs> I've been duped, hoodwinked, bamboozled. Um, in any event, now Madeline loves to call this psalm the steadfast love one. That's how I know to read this psalm to her. And we read it regularly together. And I noticed something about verse 24 I hadn't noticed before the first time I had read the psalm to her. You see, any time I had heard this verse read, it was always in terms of being grateful for the day, whatever today is, because God made it. It was always kind of in spite of whatever you were going through, this is a psalm for you to, to preach to yourself. We can wake up and say this verse and remind ourselves that God gave us today. And so as a way of grinning and bearing through the day, I would remind myself of this verse. I would approach the day like I would approach a salad if I was dieting. This is the salad that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Or I would imagine God was like me when I served my kids lunch. This is the lunch that Dada has made, and you will rejoice and be glad in it. 
While I think that it is potentially a good application of the verse, I don't think it even begins to capture the fullness of all that's going on here. Look with me at verses 21 through 24. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Those who know their New Testaments, their ears are are perking up. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What I noticed was verses 24 and verse or verses 24 and 23 were parallel. Follow this. This is the Lord's doing. This is the day that the Lord has made. What I realized was the day that the Lord has made was akin to what the Lord was doing. And what was the Lord doing? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What is marvelous What makes us rejoice and be glad is not any particular 24-hour period, but the day in which the cornerstone is rejected. The chief work in the psalm at which we are all to marvel is the work of God and making the reject stone the cornerstone. Day is not about any specific 24-hour period, is it is about a day as in a salvation historical era of the reject stone becoming the cornerstone. The Lord having become my salvation is the stone the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone. This is the doing at which I marvel. This is the day I rejoice in. This is my bet. You are church of the day of the Lord's salvation. It is day in the sense Jesus uses. Abraham would have rejoiced to see my day. He's not talking about that day in particular. It is the Christian zeitgeist. It is the salvation historical air we breathe that is our atmosphere. It is the central act of God's steadfast love. If, as I said earlier, the steadfast love of God is a supermassive black hole, this is the event horizon. This is quoted several times in the New Testament as well, by Jesus included, but I'm reminded most of of 1 Peter. You don't have to turn there. Listen to what Peter says about this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has saved you, church, 
You are the day that the Lord has made. You are the work of the Lord. Your most menial task is the work of the Lord. It is the cornerstone becoming the cornerstone over all creation. The royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession, that you would proclaim, that you would marvel, that you would receive mercy, that you would glorify him. Now, today we're taking communion, and I can think of no better application for all of this psalm than communion. I'm going to read a little bit just from Mark 14. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, my body, and he took a cup, and, he had given, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And when they had sung a hymn, now, a lot of commentators believe that the hymn that Jesus sang with his disciples was the Hillel, of which Psalm 118 is the final psalm. The reason they believe that this hymn was the Hillel is that it would have been part of the Passover liturgy of the day. And Psalm 118 would have traditionally been sung after the dinner. It would have been referenced to as a hymn. And I think it's a little bit more than speculation to think that Jesus, as he was fulfilling all righteousness for you and for me, these are some of the last words that Jesus ever sang. Out of my distress I called on the Lord and he answered me and set me free. Then Gethsemane. Then his betrayal. Peter's denial, the scattering of the sheep, the trading of him for a criminal, the denial of his kingship over Israel, Calvary. And so with this in mind, I'm just going to close by reading the psalm again in light of this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. 
They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord became as those cut off so that we can sing this psalm. So that give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever would fill our mouths and hearts. And so church, the application is simple. Behold your Savior. Behold the cornerstone. Christ is all and all is Christ's. So let's remember and proclaim as we take the cup, as we do the thing we've done thousands of times, let's remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord, O Christ. The Lord is God. Lord, you have made your light to shine upon us. Lord, as we leave today, O Lord, fill our hearts with a new song. Lord, give us all the strength that we need to endure this coming week. Oh, Lord, and we ask, not because we think that in our asking you will do, 
but because we appeal to your character and you have known what our needs are before we've asked for them. Oh Lord, and I pray that this coming week would be marked by the day that the Lord has made. For your glory, that your steadfast love would abound in endless ages. Lord, that we would sing this psalm forever. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name.